Yeah, it's definitely um like a 90s thing, right? Like yes. <laughs> being obsessed with your uh like eating fat-free things. I, that was like a big deal in my house when I was growing up. Everything had to be yeah. fat-free. And it could be full of sugar, but it, as long as it was fat-free, that's fine. Welcome to I'm a Writer But. My guest today is Kate Brody. Kate Brody lives in Los Angeles, California. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, Lit Hub, Crime Reads, Electric Lit, The Rumpus, and The Literary Review, among other publications. She holds an MFA from NYU. Her new novel is Rabbit Hole, a heart-wrenching character study of a mind twisted by grief and page-turning mystery that's as addictive as a late-night Reddit binge. Welcome, Kate. Thank you for having me. Oh, this is so exciting. (laughs) I didn't, I guess I never really accepted this about myself, but like, I, I love crime novels. <laughs> I love them. Um, and when your publicist reached out and um, I had, I had heard people talking about rabbit hole before and I knew I was going to read it. Um, and then when your publicist reached out to see if you could come on the podcast, I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. I feel like the book does well with people who are like lit fic people who are closet crime people, but like the true crime, like the crime, all they do is read crime novels. It's definitely a little bit like not always for them. So I am kind of very happy when we find somebody who it feels like is kind of at the intersection of literary fiction and crime because, um, which like Hot Springs Drive is too, I think like doing that kind of character work in the container of a, of a crime novel in some ways. Absolutely. And I know exactly what you're saying about crime readers being like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> but that is delightful to me. I absolutely love it. Um, we're going to get into all that because I want to, that's some juicy stuff. But before we do, will you please read a little excerpt for us? Sure. So um, I'm going to read, this is kind of a standalone scene. I don't know what needs a lot of introduction. Um, it's from about a third of the way into the book. Um, and all I'll say is the the premise of Rabbit Hole is that... Um, Teddy Angstrom, who's a teacher, an English teacher in her mid-20s, her father um, dies by suicide on the 10-year anniversary of her sister's disappearance. And so this is her kind of reflecting on um, the events that have unfolded. It takes me a minute to find mom when I get home. She's upstairs in dad's room, lying in his bed with her back to the door, clutching his pillow between her knees and her chest. I know she can hear my footsteps coming down the hallway but she doesn't turn around. I know she can hear the hinge creak open a few more inches. I stand there for a moment in the doorway, watching the breath move through her body like a shudder. She doesn't make any noise. I could walk over to her and touch her face with the back of my hand, but I don't. It's not me she's missing. Instead, I close the door and walk down the hallway to the stairs, down the stairs to the door, out the door into my car. I'm driving before I realize I'm going to the beach. I read somewhere that most people die at 25, but are buried at 75. A student essay, I think. One of those bad intro paragraphs where they attribute Maya Angelou quotes to Anonymous and attribute Anonymous quotes to Ben Franklin. I remember reading it and thinking, what a stupid thing to say. 
If you're not dead, you're not dead. I remember thinking men are so goddamn melodramatic. I understand what was meant by it, of course. By 25, you've given up all your hopes and dreams, your novel in progress, your hot body, your plans to travel to Japan. By 25, you have a steady job and you're right on track for your panic-inducing suburban middle age. But what is so bad about that? What is so horrible about a warm bed and a softening body and the properly timed tragedies of living? What could be so bad about giving birth and getting divorced and burying your elderly parents? That's what you're supposed to get. Mine is the only car in the parking lot. I pull off my shoes and leave them on the passenger seat. I walk across the lot and rocks barefoot, moving gingerly, still tender in that off-season way, needing to rebuild what Dad always called our summer feet. The ocean is black and silver and quiet tonight. It shushes against the sand. I think about the Irish selkies from Mom's bedtime stories. As a kid, I thought the stories were sad, scary even. The selkies transformed from seals into beautiful women, mated with fishermen, and then inevitably found their pelts and returned to sea. Often, the stories involved doomed human children, human children that existed to be left behind. The selkies could never stay. For the last 10 years, people have asked me, do you want kids? Do you think you'll get married? Are you seeing anyone? Is it serious? Did you always want to teach? Do you think you'll teach forever? Are you writing a book on the side? Have you thought about Portland or Boston? You could go back to school. You could be a principal. You could be a mom. You could do anything. You're so young, so young, so, so young. All I want is to get through the day. All I want is to take care of my dog and watch The Bachelor with mom and get laid every once in a while. I can't think about when we were four, when we were happy. I can't think about what it felt like to be small enough to be picked up in his arms, to go limp with my small, soft face pressed against his stubbly jaw. I can't think of the smell of him when, back when he still went to work, shaving cream and shoe polish, those days on the beach after the tourists had left when the weather was truly perfect and the water was as warm as it was going to get and the waves were enormous, and he let me ride on his back as he ducked them, my arms slung around his neck, my cheeks puffed out with air. The current rushed around us like we fused together, like we lived in the sea. That is such a perfect example of what we're talking about, that you're, you're kind of moving from character, right? Like you're, that's your, it seems like that's the, um, the impetus for the book. It's, it's the driving force in the book. Um, we're remembering that, yes, this mystery exists, this terrible thing happened. And then this other terrible thing happened 10 years later. Um, but it's, in, you know, if I'm thinking of like a traditional crime novel, I, I think that passage would be her like charging through and looking at mark microfiche and you know like um <laughs> like showing up on someone's doorstep and banging on the door you know and like the the investigation would be the driving force but here the driving force really feels like um you know grief and um and and trauma and and really just wanting to get through the day and i i find that so refreshing and subversive um and i i wanted to know from you when you started writing this, did you think, oh, this is going to be my crime novel? Or were you like, I, I'm going to write about this person who happens to have a sister who went missing? Um, I guess kind of both. I, I had written a novel before this novel that was this like super long meandering character study, you know, one woman, 30 years, like that kind of thing. Um, and it was totally unsaleable <laughs> and I was really heartbroken. <laughs> and um, so I thought about I thought a lot about like, okay, what can I do with this book to kind of challenge myself to give it a little bit more of a propulsive plot? Because I don't actually think that's a crazy thing for a reader to want. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, story is just so much a part of who we are as human beings. So, um, I was a big crime reader as a kid. I still love a really well-written crime novel. Like I love the ton of French books. Oh my God. The best. Uh, the best. So, and the writing is beautiful. I think that's like, you know, um, there's like a thing with MFA programs, I think, where any kind of genre fiction is sort of like the ugly stepchild. But um, it, you know, you see books that are doing it really well and you think like, okay, there's no reason why the quality of the writing can't be where I want it to be and also kind of work in this space. Um, but then, yeah, I think I was never going to write a kind of straight down the middle crime novel. The thing that I find interesting about crime, I guess, is that it is, and I think this is what a lot of what draws people to true crime is that it, it, there are these big real life tragedies, these, you know, they're crimes and they're sexy and there's a detective maybe chasing down leads, but also these things happen in life. And when they happen, they, they're tragedies. They're not, um, they're really not anything more than that. So children go missing, people die by suicide and, um, families are left to pick up the pieces. So I wanted to do it in a way that would, I guess, kind of like play with the crime genre, but also maybe flip it on its head a little bit. Like how could I make it resemble real life and what might actually happen to these people who are the subject of it, um, who are the subject of, of all this scrutiny. Um, so Teddy, I think, Oh, she's almost like trying to think of, the things that are happening to her as though there is this like crime novel around her and then occasionally brushes up against the reality of it, which is that like, this is, this is a tragedy. Mm-hmm. So did it begin with character for you or did it begin with her voice? Was, was this, this a similar character to that um, meandering novel that you wrote that we've all written (laughs) (laughs) and we all mourn? (laughs) Um, Was she sort of resurrected here um, in this more, you know, plotty type of book or, or what was the impetus for you for this particular story? Um, She's definitely a different character than that novel. If anything, I think that character was, more my mom um and teddy feels like the dark twin version of me she, you know i was kind of in a very similar place when i started the book i was in my mid 20s i was teaching high school english um and had just kind of gotten through this period where i felt like everything was spiraling out of control and i was making a lot of really bad decisions so teddy was a way of chasing that like okay what if what if I couldn't um, get it together? Like, what if things just kept spiraling out? Because that felt really possible, mm. like that um, that I might not. <laughs> and it and scary, you know, when you're in that place where you're like, I don't even trust myself. Mm-hmm. So Teddy is that person, and there's something really cathartic about writing that character because it's like, well, let's let's see through every bad decision um that she could make uh but yeah it probably started with the voice because I knew it was going to be her story and I knew it was going to be that first person present tense really claustrophobic she doesn't really look she doesn't really examine the past she is sort of too scared to think about the future um like in that passage I just read she's very just in survival mode so Mm -hmm. the voice had to be 
that really defensive, um, claustrophobic first person. And that came first. And I absolutely love that because of where she's at in her headspace and, um, a couple things. So like when, when the, the novel opens with us being told right away that 10 years to the day of her sister going missing, her father kills himself, um, mm-hmm. dies by suicide. And, um, there's not really, a there's not really far for her to descend into grief. She's already right there. Right. Like, and, and so we don't get this, we don't, we don't really get a sense that, um, that she has far to go to grieve him. I think she's been grieving him for a long time. Yeah. And so we kind of get her like moving through life with this new bit of information. And again, in contrast to like a more traditional crime novel, she doesn't say to herself, well, I'm going to figure this out. I want to know why I want to know what happened. She kind of like stumbles into information and, um, you know, like he wrote down some scattered notes that she finds and and she kind of thinks like, well, what is this? And there's never any like moment where she's like, I'm going to go and I'm going to investigate this. She kind of just, she kind of just takes a little step, you know? Um, (laughs) And I really appreciated that because she is, she is already in this really bad place. And so from there, any sort of like light peeking through (laughs) almost feels incidental, right? Like she's, she she's sort of like it gets more she gets more interested in it as it goes along but there's never like it never feels like there's a moment where she says okay this is it i'm going to i'm going to figure this out if it's the last thing i do yeah i was my husband brought this up recently cuz he was like i think that is such a i hadn't i hadn't thought about it in those terms but he was like that is such a a beat you know that you expect in a crime novel the the decision to set out to uncover the truth And I hadn't really thought about it like that other than that. I don't think she would allow herself to do that. I don't think she, I think it would seem kind of goofy and delusional to her. And it would Mm -hmm. make her feel like she was becoming her father to declare that she had any kind of interest in solving this. So everything she does, she does while kind of also being like, oh, well, I'll probably never figure this out. Or like, oh, this is um this is a mess that I'm just cleaning up for my mom like she can't quite admit that she wants the same things he wants because she's so afraid that that she is him you know that they're one in the same mm-hmm. and so there's that kind of distancing that I'm doing it but I'm not really doing it or mm-hmm. maybe I'm doing it ironically or something yeah and I mean one of the first leads she follows is to this character Bill who used to do landscaping for them back when her sister was alive and starts a relationship with him, um, which I could, I could see like in a traditional crime novel, but it's a very, um, uh, she really pushes against it. You know, she really tries her hardest not to allow any sort of real intimacy, um, with her and Bill, even though she yearns for it. Um, and the sex scenes between them are so delightful. (laughs) They're so juicy and informative. Um, they're you know they're intimate but they're also sometimes about power and control for teddy um and i want to hear from you how you write sex scenes how do you know when it's necessary when a sex scene is necessary to give the you know the reader the information that you're trying to give them and and how do you know that what you've written is is good 
Um, so I, I mean, I love writing sex scenes. I think they are such a interesting glimpse into character because there's, you know, the way that people approach sex is so different depending on, on who they are. So for some people, that's going to be them at their most unguarded for others. It's going to be the, the most performative version, the most, um, self-conscious presentation of themselves. So thinking a lot about, well, how, how does this person exist in their body? And then how, how do they meet other people? Like what level of intimacy are they open to? Um, what, what sort of power dynamics are appealing to them? I just, I love it. I think there's so many kind of interesting ways you can go. Um, and the imagery, I think because it, I don't feel like I've seen every kind of sex you can have on the page. So it feels like there's a lot um, of potential in terms of like finding new images and finding new ways to say things that, that haven't been said. So I think it feels like I've done a good job when I have surprised myself or I have that feeling of like that image is exactly right. Like um, almost like a haiku thing, you know, the idea of getting as close to the thing itself without metaphor, just mm -hmm. getting really down to um, the actual image. And I think I don't like, I don't like writing about people's bodies in the kind of like, this is Teddy. She is tall and has a tiny waist and brown hair. <laughs> like, you know, I hate that kind of stuff, <laughs> especially in a first person narrative. Like people kept mm -hmm. saying to me, Oh, I can't, I don't really know what she looks like. And I was like, well, you know, fill it in. Like, I don't care. <laughs> Who cares? Um, she's not thinking all day about her body in the way that other people would be. So I think like the the moments that are interesting to me are when she is um is kind of thinking about it really authentically. So yeah, I I I love writing sex scenes. And I think um, like, how do I know when they're necessary? I think with Teddy, they were often um, like a pressure valve. Mm -hmm. So it felt like she was having a lot of like getting all of this information, having a lot of um, emotional response to it, but is also so repressed and kind of like unwilling to experience sadness or anger or frustration and doesn't really have an outlet for that other than sex. So I think in moments where it felt like, okay, she has absorbed a lot, really cannot process it. This, this would be the way that she processes it. And in some scenes, it's almost like an act of violence and other scenes, it's almost like um, submission. It's like whatever she needs from it at that moment to be seen or whatever, um, that is a place where that's a place where she feels comfortable kind of acting that out, acting out those like subversive impulses. Yeah. And it's, it's a glimpse, you know, like, like I said, that's one of her first leads is when she goes and, and visits, you know, stakes this guy out, goes to a show he's playing, um, which hilariously he's in a Dave Matthews band cover band called marching ants, <laughs> which is such a wonderful detail. There's so many things about bill that I'm like, this guy's kind of, like this, I could see this guy. <laughs> <laughs> he's not like rugged, like, you know, quiet. Like he's like, he's got like some nerdy things about him and he's extremely clean and he's like, um, 
it, he, their politics don't seem to mesh well. Um, but like underneath all of that is like a steady soul mm-hmm. and um, someone who sees her in this really important way. And I think her decision, you know, to go home with him that first night is like so important for us to to understand where Teddy is and who Teddy is. Um, because it does feel like a, like a, it, be, it feels both like a big decision and also kind of like a tossed off whatever decision. Um, and, you know, it's like you're saying she's taking what she needs and sometimes she needs um, like anonymous intimacy and sometimes she needs violence and sometimes, you know, she needs touch. And I felt like to that point, I didn't really understand that Teddy was out there getting it, you know, <laughs> Um and I, I, I really like that. It helped open up her character even more for me. Yeah, I think he Bill was a fun character to write. I don't always feel like I write men um, well. Like, it's a lot less intuitive for me. So I had to kind of go in and complicate him in edits. So a lot of, a lot of that was, um, you know, thinking about, well, what, what kind of person could Bill be and and what kind of contradictions feel like the contradictions that real people have and um, the kind of friction that would make him exciting to Teddy without, yeah, necessarily like shaking whatever that core thing is that um, she is drawn to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I had to do something similar when I was editing Hot Springs Drive. My male characters were all pretty, um, like, shitty. <laughs> <laughs> and my editor was like, yeah, yeah, we get it. But, like, what else? You know, like, they don't have a great marriage or whatever. But, like, there's these are people, you know? Yeah. Um, how do you help yourself complicate characters in editing? Well, I think... Um there's a couple so like with teddy she she kind of came on the page fully formed and i think like i said a a lot of that was like a lot of um, my own experiences like biography was in her with claire i had such an idea of who she was before i started writing like i had really done a lot of backstory work on claire um and a lot of that didn't make it into the book but i feel it there kind of layered into who she is and how she responds in different situations Mm -hmm. with bill he was like totally a stock character in the first draft of the book and then as his role increased i started thinking about like okay well like who is this guy what is he into um what are the things that are already there that are actually maybe more interesting than i'm i'm giving them credit for like okay he he does own his own business like teddy is so kind of even though I think she imagines that she's this like super liberal minded person, she is kind of disdainful towards him and mm-hmm. uh, like looks down on his level of education, but he owns, you know, he lives in his own place and like owns his own business. Like he's doing better than her in almost every across every metric. Um, but then, yeah, he's in this Dave Matthews band cover band, even like physical things. Like I think one of the last things we did was make his hair like totally prematurely gray but it just felt like that maybe adding little things um that felt incongruous like okay he's the hot landscaping guy but also he's got this like full head of gray hair um and those 
incongruities, I think, are what make people feel real and um, lived in, that they're not all one thing, that there are things about Bill that have the potential to surprise Teddy and the reader. Yeah, and I think he he understands that Teddy is speaking to him, like, through sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, like, you could have gone in another direction. And, and there's a couple times when Teddy... Um, like vices her legs around him and and he can't move and I think um he could have responded explosively to that or annoyed but he just kind of allows it it's like something he understands about Teddy and and that's what I mean about it being like meaningful in those moments like she needs to be able to have control over him and he understands that yeah I think they both understand that they're acting something out that's maybe beyond what they're able to talk about I, I, a few times I think he does try to talk about um some of those dynamics that are coming up but but she's really not interested in going there in like a conscious way so that space is important yep yeah um another thing that he introduces to the narrative is guns mm-hmm. I think that's another way that you subvert expectations because um it's such a political topic and you know I think I think more and more um we're seeing like I was thinking about Amy Lau and beef. Did you watch beef? Yeah. And, and she had a gun that she had an intimate relationship with. And Teddy, Teddy is also like curious about guns and he takes her to the gun range and then she goes by herself. And, um, and I want to, I want to kind of unpack that with you. Why, why specifically in this narrative, you know, are the guns present and not in a way that's like, Oh, guns are bad, (laughs) you know? And also in in terms of like, why is it subversive for a woman to turn to a gun the way that they both do? So I think, um, I mean, I really couldn't be more anti-gun in my day. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am like constantly horrified by this country's relationship with guns, but I think it is a very real part of life for some people. I think Bill would own guns. Like mm-hmm. he is kind of libertarian. He lives in Maine. Um, and I don't think that's because he's like sinister. I think that is just kind of baked into the culture in some ways. Like that is, that felt um, right. Mm-hmm. Teddy, on the other hand, I think um, coming from, maybe a background that's more like mine where her family kind of eschewed guns and um, as a group, you know, is kind of like anti-gun there, there is something appealing about it. And I think especially given that she has experienced all of this loss, there's like a, a death drive thing to it. You know, like I I also think about people who keep guns in their house. um, And I, I, in some ways I think like, I'm trying to find a way to put this into words that doesn't sound flippant. But whenever I hear of someone who keeps a gun in their house for whatever, you know, (laughs) delusional reasons, like they think they're going to play cops and robbers. But I just think like, I would never be able to keep a gun in my house because I would not, it's that I don't trust myself, honestly, around something that capable of destruction. And I think maybe that's, people who have experienced like a like a deep kind of depression i i understand how that would be alluring in your darkest moments and i would never 
have it. So there's something I think a bit sexy to Teddy about it, given that it represents like so much potential death. It's, you know, her father has just taken his own life. Um, And so for her to then all of a sudden start keeping guns feels yeah, like a like a little subversive, like a like flirting a little too closely with danger. Um, and I think with a any kind of a crime narrative, you know, thinking even back to like the Chekhov's gun thing, it does um just introduce the this this like promise of violence basically and what's going to happen and who's gonna be on the receiving end of that. Um, so from like a narrative perspective, when you have Teddy, who is spiraling out in so many ways, um, and increasingly losing control to then grab onto, and I think people do this to grab onto something that is immensely powerful, uh, is terrifying. So yeah, it, um, it, yeah, it's alluring, I think, fictionally in all the same ways it's alluring to her in her life that it represents this like potential for violence that um, is both scary and and somehow promises some kind of relief. Yeah, it's it's like, you know, I had the same experience as you. I I I grew up in a home that had guns, you know, and I'm, I'm from Florida and it wasn't that uncommon. Um, and having gone to a gun range and shooting, you know, like a nine millimeter, I had the realization that I, I never wanted to hold something like that in my hand again, because it, it felt so, um, like I understood what kind of violence it promised. And I, I mm-hmm. had made my peace with, with not, not needing that, not needing that to yeah. hold close but I do think there's a way in which it's exactly like you're saying, someone who's in crisis, someone who's experienced death so closely or, um, you know, grief in a way that has no aim because her sister isn't found. Um, you would kind of want to hold that kind of power close to you, that kind of destruction close to you so you could get to know it better. You could mm-hmm. understand it better. Almost like, and again, not to sound um, diminishing, but but um, almost in the way that I think sometimes women turn to true crime because we know violence, we know that it's around and we want to understand it better or even recognize it better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that there's something about um, being being in a position of control and like looking that thing in the eye and that that makes you feel maybe a false sense of security. I just read, um, there's a new book out about the, um, the disappearance and murder of Polly Kloss. Remember that from, um, the nineties, Winona Ryder got involved cause it was in her hometown. Um, no, that doesn't sound familiar. It's a new, it's, it's a new true crime book. Let me try to figure out what the title is so that I can plug it here. But, um, it's a really sad story. Uh, she was abducted from her home and it's called in light of all darkness by Kim cross. And her father-in-law was one of the um, investigators on the case. So that's where she got a lot of her information. It's very well done. And I read it and it's, it's, you know, like I said, very well written, but it's devastating. It's a tragedy. And I find myself like when I can't sleep at night, going back into the details of that case and, and tweaking them so that Polly doesn't die and isn't taken or, um, Mm -hmm. and it, and I, 
logically know that that's impossible, but I, and I, and I, you know, continually try to get myself to stop and I keep doing it with my brain. I keep going back there again and again and again. Um, and it's just interesting. It's just, why would I be drawn to that again and again, those kinds of stories? And why would I keep trying to fix them in my head? You know, I think that's just like such a human thing. Yeah, it is interesting to me too, the way that I think a lot of, um, the way we approach true crime, it's like we want to map fictional arcs onto these real stories. So the stories that end um, with like a really tidy resolution and some kind of justice, like it doesn't have to be that they, uh, you know, the disappeared girl is found or whatever but as long as there's a body and somebody to put in prison like that feels like a very tidy narrative but that's such a small percentage of of actual crimes like most disappearances they're just these kind of horrible unanswered you know never-ending um things or if they you know you get an answer it's it's slightly unsatisfying so the true crime thing is is so interesting I mean I love I like had read you know popular crime and in cold blood and Helter Skelter and all of those books I love that stuff but then um some if it feels like something has shifted a little bit lately where so much true crime is just pure titillation too Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. that is um also interesting because i think there is like what you're talking about where so so, you know so much of the audience for true crime is women women watching it and um using it as a way to kind of safely experience these fears but i think there is part of it that is just rubbernecking like just Mm -hmm. staring at something horrible um and that is also interesting to me that we have that impulse that's such a strong impulse to be like well let me find this grisly story um that doesn't involve me at all and just obsess over it just like really look at um crime scene photos and like listen watch watch video of family members crying um and that also does something there's like a thrill in that which i is such a strange kind of human response yeah and i think you know i've obviously been asked about my relationship to true, true crime a lot in the past few months cuz my novel is based on a on a on a real murder and um i keep trying to you know i i i keep trying to answer it in the way that that lends me the most grace <laughs> and um you know like I, you know, it's storytelling or it's, you know, it's humanity and and it is all of those things, but I think it is, there is this other base part of being human that is just looking, right? Mm -hmm. Just looking, staring. And that's harder to talk about. Yeah, it is. It's, um, I've tried to make it clear, like when I talk about these things that I am talking about myself, like I, I watch these things and I, I feel it too. I'm not, um, above it but I think that is part of it for sure that there's something appealing about distancing yourself from the world and turning everyone into characters the way that people talk about certain crimes and murders too 
it's like they're not real people like mm-hmm. they're just characters um in a book but but also it is very important to their enjoyment that it actually happened so it's like right. this kind of contradictory thing i think what you're saying about like wishing polly had a different outcome and like rewriting that for her is so interesting um because i think i don't know i i understand that impulse feeling like well, this is one possible thing. This is one possible story, but what if we, what if we edited it? Um, and trying to kind of break from the, the, you know, the constriction that, that it's real and it happened and it's history. Yeah. Cause so many things had to go right for the kidnapper Mm -hmm. and any one of those things that they had gone wrong, it would have been a different outcome. And so I obsess over that. Yeah. But I think, you know, the reason why I think that book is so well-written and why I think your book is so well-written is that it's sort of rejecting that like formulaic um, titillation, that bad true crime, you know? Um, And unfortunately I've come to think of like Dateline NBC, which I used to love so much as bad true crime, because there is the stereotypical, you know, angelic victim. And then there's, you know, they, they solve it. That's the closure that you get. But often, like you said, there's, there's rare, you know, it's not so often that we, we find the body or we, or we find, you know, the person who, who hurt that victim. Um, there's just this murky unknowing. Um, and, and I, everyone listening, just understand that we're going to start talking about spoilers. So pause and go read this book. If you haven't, it's excellent. And then come back. Um, we don't find Angie's body and we don't really know for sure what happened to her. Um, and I think it's interesting that you offer a possibility that seems like, okay, I think this is probably what happened, but we don't get to see the guy taken to jail. We don't find Angie. We don't know for sure. We just get a possibility based on what she learns from Mickey. We haven't even talked about Mickey yet, <laughs> but um, did you worry about providing any sort of satisfying, um, you know, resounding conclusion for for? you know, potential readers or were you just, did you know that you were pursuing a story where that kind of satisfaction just wasn't going to come? I didn't worry about it until the very end. Like that maybe right after the last edit, I kind of called my agent in a panic and I was like, should we just, should we just make it conclusive? <laughs> um, and she was kind of like, no, stick to your guns. Cause I had felt pretty strongly uh, that I I wanted it to, I was trying to do something with fiction where it would be closer to life than maybe the nonfiction that felt overproduced. Mm-hmm. So um, to me, like, I also think the book is pretty clear about this from the start. Like at the beginning of the book, um, Teddy's father has been looking into this for 10 years. Like not only has someone been gone for 10 years, but he has kind of like turned every stone in those 10 years and he killed himself. Like he did not get there. So um, I think it's an act of hubris really from the start that Teddy would, would chase down this same thing. Um, And the question for me was never, never really like what happened to Angie so much as like what will happen to Teddy Mm -hmm. as she goes down this, this road. Um, I will say I find the ending more conclusive than I think anyone else finds it. Like I, I think there's enough there for you to get to a place of like, 
we are 90% sure Mm -hmm. that something in this shape happened to Angie. Mm -hmm. And I think also what was interesting to me is like that feeling, that 90% sure feeling is worse than not knowing sometimes because you're like, I should just let this go. But that little possibility that maybe Mickey's recollection is wrong or whatever, like that will also haunt Teddy. Like that will also be another thing that she has to let go of. Um, And the idea that like Mickey's father is not even someone you could seek justice from. Like he is, there's no possibility. He is not like this mustache twirling villain. He's a broken person himself. So, um, that door is closed. So, you know, the idea that Teddy's going to get any, um, if she has any kind of closure, it's, she's going to have to let it go. Like that is just, it's going to have to be a very conscious choice to just move on with her life, which is the same option she had at the start of the book that she didn't take, mm-hmm. which is let this go, let go of your sister, but also let go of your dad. Um, and, I think at the very end, there's kind of the the alternate ending where she imagines like a happy ending for Angie, which is, I think, similar to what you were talking about with Polly, that there's like, there's a, a version of it she wants to hold on to in her head. And that is also being kind of eclipsed by by this new knowledge that she has about what what likely happened. It sort of mirrors the choice she made right after Angie went missing. Um, And I'm calling it a choice, even though for her, it was um, a memory, right? That her sister had come into bed with her and that, you know, that meant she was the last one to see her sister alive. And she realizes later that that probably never happened. And this book plays with perception and memory a lot. Um, And Teddy has to understand that the things that she remembers, even at one point she, she questions who her father was because she comes to this place where she isn't sure what's true. She isn't sure if she's seeing things correctly, if she's understanding things correctly. Um, and, you know, at the end, she's got two, two different outcomes that she can cling to. And I'm, I'm guessing the way that I do with Polly, she's going to move between them a lot. Mm-hmm. And it would be a, you know, a constant bit of work to choose the one where her sister has, you know, started a life elsewhere. Yeah. And, um, and maybe just that's sort of just a comforting fantasy to imagine a, a different world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I think I'm, I'm so interested in memory and especially the way that grief affects memory and mm-hmm. uh, how we hold on to people who are gone I think you know talking about like char- building characters and making them complex there's something so interesting to me about when people die there's um such an impulse to flatten them into one thing and like create a narrative around them and even when that is is um coming from like a really well-meaning place And it's sort of like, well, let's participate in some kind of hagiography. Let's turn this dead person into a saint. It feels so 
bad to me. Like, it just feels like, well, now all my memories are fading. And this story that we keep telling over and over again about this person is becoming who they were in its, in the place of those memories. And, um, and you start to feel like, well, did I know this person at all? So I think Teddy's concern about memory and her own reliability is because if she, if she kind of accepts that, um, she's not getting any more information about about her dad or Angie like everything she has is everything she'll ever have about them and she is going to have to just try to hold some version of all of it together she will just have to we kind of do this right we have to commit to just some version of the past and then you live with that Mm -hmm. and that's what feels more real than like you were saying than sort of the commodified true crime 2020 episode or you know some of those really awful podcasts that are out there right now that (laughs) are so reductive and um really just about rubbernecking this is what feels so um you know messy and that's life right like that's humanity is um these choices that are not right or wrong or true or false it's somewhere in between those things have you ever seen just because you brought up dateline have you ever seen the um like Bill Hader impression of Keith Morrison. Of course. Yes. I think about that all the time too, where he's just like, so obviously horny for these (laughs) bad stories. So in my memory of the episode that I based this novel on, it was Keith Morrison. And so I based, there's a chapter called the investigative reporter. And I based it on my, on the horniest version of, of Keith Morrison that I could think of. That's that's exactly who I was picturing. (laughs) It turns out it was Josh Mankiewicz. And so again, memory, you can't trust it. You really can't trust it. Um, But that's funny. No, I know he's such a, he's such a cultural icon, a delight, a true treasure. So literary. You can tell he's just like a reader. (laughs) Yeah. Not to make this about him. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Um, You made another bold choice in this book that I want to talk about. Again, it's a spoiler with Wolfie and the way that Wolfie dies. Mm-hmm. did you know that that was how wolfie would die i mean uh speaking of chekhov's gun um she wolfie's very sick he he's so sick that he needs to be put down but his the place he hates the most is the vet as many dog owners can relate um and so she decides to take care of it herself and um <clears throat> i just would love to hear you talk about about the choice to have her shoot wolfie yeah this has been i guess the it's surprising to me. Maybe it shouldn't be. I'm so naive. It's surprising to me that this is the most controversial part of the book. Oh my God. The dog dying. Okay. Yeah. Like that's people are going to, you know, <laughs> I I have people who I think are going to like send dog diapers to my house to like take oh. away my, um, I, I did. I knew pretty early on. I wrote that scene ahead. So I kind of like jumped ahead and wrote that scene. It was hard to write, but, um, also felt like an anchor in a way. Like I feel like when I'm writing, I have some scenes where I skip ahead to write them or whatever. And then those feel like tent poles, like they're holding up the rest of the story. So that felt like a really important emotional beat. And I think introducing the gun to thinking about how to subvert that it is this act of violence and it does get used, but I think ultimately, and granted there's some 
complexity and ambiguity to that scene, but that is in a lot of ways, an act of mercy. So like it is Teddy taking this, this thing that could have um, really been a way of prolonging this like insane cycle of suffering and, and ending it, um, ending, ending at least the suffering of one creature I, I I guess I'm surprised by the reaction to it because at the start of the book, Wolfie is dying. Like the, mm-hmm. to, to me, it's like a it's a clock. You know, it's like if you introduce a pregnant character at the start of something, it puts a clock on the narrative. Like, okay, we got you know nine months at a max. So um, with Wolfie, like part of it is you know Teddy's barely hanging on to begin with. Her dad kills himself, and now there's this other loss that's looming that I think is like okay she will not survive this she even talks about like losing Wolfie and her mom as being a sort of rock bottom um and then at that point in the narrative that she actually has kind of like in a breaking bad sort of way moved from this very passive character to somebody who's actually doing something mm-hmm. um feels important also to her character i mean obviously there's so many things about it that are incredibly fucked up but the bigger like harm against animals to me is the fact that they are keeping him alive for for like no reason other than that they can't stand to let him go and um and that is just like coming from a place of too much love but bill is the first one to say like this dog is suffering this is mm-hmm. not it's not a humane thing um and could teddy have handled it better yeah i mean she could handle like every everything in the book better but that <laughs> is not like like um i don't i don't read it i guess the same way a lot of people read it that's <laughs> i think it is in many ways her coming out of like a fugue state and um and at least doing something kind of like acting on her environment to, to make some kind of change or decision it felt very important narratively and um <clears throat> as a dog owner and my dog's almost 14 and and she was really sick while i was reading this she's better now but and and i kept thinking like why are they torturing this poor dog you know they've got to let this dog go but they keep hold of they keep him alive because he's their last bit of tether to Angie because she was it was Angie's dog and it also feels like a metaphor for the hope that they have and then when she dispatches Wolfie um she realizes that she doesn't have anything to dig with you know she doesn't she can't bury him she goes back to the car thinking you know she'll come back and then she realizes she doesn't know where he is so immediately that tether is is gone you know Mm -hmm. like and and she can't find it anymore um so you know both for the dog's sake, it was the right thing to do <laughs> to, you know, put him down. Um, it was, the description is so visceral. And I think that's part of what's hard about reading it and probably hard about writing it. It's, you know, it explodes his head basically. Um, and that's hard, but narratively for the dog and for their mental state, it felt like a catharsis that was necessary. Yeah. And the fact that it ends in such a sort of ugly way I think also made sense I mean Wolfie's her last tether to Angie her last tether to her dad to just their family there's a 
there's I would there's not a huge amount of flashback in the story, but there's one flashback that involves them getting Wolfie. That is this kind of last perfect moment that the four of them had as a family. And so I think he is really the promise of that that has gone awry. Like this puppy arrived and they briefly saw a version of themselves where they were so happy, like Norman Rockwell painting. And then by the end, you know, he's um, in, you know, a heat, a bloody heap in the woods. And that is kind of the the way that the story has gone. So I think um, it also just felt like there was a kind of symmetry there. with For Wolfie. sure. And in her, you know, imagining the, the way that Angie died and, and was, you know, placed into the river and then, you know, nature took its course there's a there's a symmetry there just like you're saying to the fact that she has to leave wolfie to just be taken by nature because she can't find her way back to him and um you know same thing with her sister um you know in this in her envisioning of what the actual outcome was her sister you know just sort of slowly disappeared as nature took her um yeah which is i mean hate to break it to everybody but that's like how we all go basically like you know she i mean hopefully i would it. i would rather be like placed in the ground and like a tree planted on top of me than put into a casket <laughs> you know like and preserved it, that seems so <laughs> grim to me i yeah i agree i think i think we do all of these things because we're trying to get away from whatever the reality of it um but even when you do, there's a moment where I think you realize like, oh, like at the end of the day, I'm still just, you, you walk away. I mean, I remember with my, my grandma, cause she buried two of her kids, my dad and his sister. And she started getting weird about her own um, burial because she just had so much anxiety walking away from their graves, like leaving mm-hmm. her kids behind in the ground. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, it's, yeah, is it, is it ideal the way Teddy handled things with the, with Wolfie? Like, no, but uh, that was not that, that far from whatever nice ending there was for Wolfie. Mm -hmm. Can I tell you my wild uh, red herring assumption as I was reading the book? Yeah. I thought Rick had something to do with Angie's death. (laughs) Cause he's so like he knows everything and he's like nosy and like he'll be like oh, i knew them back when you know and it's like mm-hmm, i know you did rick rick was based on uh my like first principal when i started teaching who was this like very sweet bumbling man who drove everyone insane but um who i actually ended up having a sweet spot for once i had other bosses who were worse in different ways but that's funny i should yeah rick has the like secret evil villain that's right and i guess i have to apologize to rick because <laughs> he literally did just care okay like he, was so <laughs> he just was trying to be a friend <laughs> um well i absolutely love this book it's incredible it's um you know it's literary fiction meets crime fiction it's um it's just wonderful. I, I loved reading it. I'm sad it's over. I need you to write another one. Oh, thank you so much. I I will say I felt such like when I read Hot Spring Drive, I was like, oh, I wish I wrote this book because it was like that's <laughs> exactly the kind of stuff I'm trying to do all the time. And I had this moment where I was halfway through it 
where I was like, I cannot believe that we've gotten this much of these people's worlds in such an efficient space. Like I, with the new thing I'm working on now, I'm starting to worry it's not long enough because it's just shorter than my other books. So I'm like, I must be missing something. But then you're your not. book, I thought, no, we're getting so, we're like, I felt like I knew those characters. They were so lived in. I totally understood all the boys, all these dynamics within the first like 60 pages. It was incredible. That is everything to me. Thank you so much for saying that. That that's that's everything. It was really amazing. And also I love I'm not like huge on setting. Like I I could kind of give a crap about setting. So I love when there's just like here's a house, here's a house <laughs> inside and I cuz I'm always like oh god, I got to get these people out of the house. And then with your book I was like I just I want them to stay in the house and like like that domestic conflict was just done so so well so I, I loved it that's amazing because I've been asked a few times like why don't you say where they are and why don't you talk about the city or the town or whatever and 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 I'm the same way I'm like well why why should I <laughs> like I I think I you know there's some scene setting but it is it's a claustrophobic domestic housebound I mean she dies in the house you know yeah they have their affair in the house um so I'm sure that's the, why I made the choices that I made and not because I'm a hack. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good. Um, everyone go read Rabbit Hole um, and, then, and then come listen to this podcast.